So last week, we were in, uh, what would you say, we were in kind of distinguished company, weren't we? Because um, we had a guest preacher, the moderator of the Free Church of Scotland, the Reverend Angus Howitt, was here. Now, because of that, obviously, we took a little break from our studies in the book of Genesis, but tonight, as you can probably tell, we are going to go back to the first book of the Bible. And as we do that, what we find is that a shift occurs. Okay? Because we've got here a shift from sort of the big picture stuff about the life of Abraham right down into the more sort of specific details about his life. Do you see what I mean by that? Like, chapters 11, chapters 12, we've got the big picture stuff, right? We're, we're, we've got the sort of you know, all the stuff, all the background stuff about where, you know, where he's come from, uh, what his family's like. Then you get into chapter 12, and then you've got the call, that's life-defining call that he's got from God, right? So it's all sort of big, massive, big-picture stuff, isn't it? And then we go from that to what we've got just now, and it's much more, it's much narrower, isn't it? We go from all that big picture stuff right down to one journey. From Canaan to Egypt and then back up again to Canaan. Okay, so from the big picture stuff, we go right down into the more detailed stuff about Abraham. Abraham. Okay, what we'll do this evening is we're going to consider these following three aspects of this passage. I'll give you the three points just now. We're going to, we're going to think about the, the challenge of God's promises. Then we'll think about the corruption of Abram's heart. And then we'll think about the continuance of God's blessing. So you got those? I'll say them again, just in case you don't. We'll think about the challenge of God's promises. Then the corruption, Abram's heart then the continuance of God's blessing. Let's start with the first of those, the challenge of God's promises. Sounds weird. The challenge of God's promises. Okay. This section that we've got here in in chapter 12, it kind of feels like the day after a graduation. Or it feels like the day after you've just heard about a job promotion or the day after a party, the day after a celebration. Because what we've got here in the immediate background is a great memory. The great memory of a great event. Because think about what has just happened in the first section that Paul read there. What did we look at? What was it, two weeks ago? God has called Abraham. And he's called him. Do you remember he told him to go to this new land? And then Abram's got all these wonderful, stunning uh, promises of blessing from God. And then, do you remember where we left it? Do you remember what Abram was up to? Abram had gone to this land, and he was wandering about the land. He was going from place to place. And do you remember what he was doing? He was building altars, and he was worshipping God right throughout Cain. So, fantastic stuff. Like, the background here is, you know, the high point or one of the high points in the whole life of Abram. But then what happens? We get into this portion of scripture and do you see what happens? 
the bottom falls out, doesn't it? Everything starts to go pear-shaped for Abraham. Look at verse 10. Look, you, our first verse that we're going to consider here. Everything goes, it's a disaster. Everything goes pear-shaped because we are told there was a famine in the land. So it's almost like Abram kind of gets settled in Canaan. He gets to Canaan and almost immediately there is a test for him concerning the land. Now, uh, like kids in a playground or what we go for uh, like Presbyterians in a general assembly commentators love to sort of bicker okay, about what is going on in these verses that we've got here because some will say, some of the commentators on this part of Genesis will say that Abram is in the wrong immediately here you follow what I'm talking about? They will say that when he heads off to Egypt because of the famine, that he's doing the wrong thing. You know, they would say that it's almost like Abram bottles it. You know, the first sign of a problem in this new land, that, you know, bottles flying everywhere and he's running off. That's what some commentators would say. Now, dare I suggest that I don't think that's right? I'll tell you why. You examine that text there and you will find no hint of a prohibition or no hint of condemnation from God about Abram moving to Egypt. Okay, no hint of God criticising that. Now you might think, okay, well, so what? But then we do find that in other places, don't we? Like, think, think about Genesis 26. You don't have to turn there think about what happens later on in Genesis you've got Isaac and guess what he is in pretty much exactly the same problem isn't he he's facing a famine in the land and he's contemplating what is he going to do and do you know what God says to him there I'll read it out it's, uh, Genesis 26 verse 2 he says this God says to Isaac same situation God says Isaac don't do not go to Egypt. And then you think about it, there's not sort of an equivalent of that, is there, in Genesis 12? There's no parallel, there's nothing like, no hint of that from God. And in fact, on top of that, I think we're actually shown the necessity of Abram's flight to Egypt. Because verse 10 doesn't just say that there's a famine, does it? You see how it, the verse ends. We're told that Abram had to go because this famine was just so severe. So at the start, at least, okay? At the beginning, at least, we perhaps shouldn't be too harsh on this guy, Abram. For now, anyway, we shouldn't be too harsh on him. Okay, that said, let's get to the important aspect here with this point. Because, folks, what we have to recognize in this part of Genesis 12 is that here... God tests Abram's faith and he does so using the very promises that God has given him. Now, I know we've lost an hour of sleep, okay? And we're all weary, but we need to get our heads around that. I'll say it again. God tests Abram's faith here using the very promises that God has made Abram. Now let's unpack that. 
Think about what God has said to Abraham. What's Abraham been told? Now, Abraham's been promised a great austerity, isn't he? I mean, he's a man who's been promised many, many kids. He's going to be the, he's the father of a great nation. And do you remember what the test was? We looked at it two weeks ago, remember? The test of faith is the fact that he's also been told that Sarai can't give birth. That she's described as barren. So you've got that. And then what have we got here? In this next section. We've seen that Abraham's been promised that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Well, what's the other part of the promise? He's been promised a great land. He's been promised Canaan. He's got the promised land. So what's the test of faith here? The test of faith is that Abraham now sees that like Sarai, the land like Sarai, Canaan cannot bring forth fruit. Do you see it? God has given Abraham all of these wonderful promises. But now what God is doing, God is using those very promises to test Abraham's faith in himself. Okay, now, let me suggest that we have to really pay attention to what happens with Abram here. Because there's no doubt that God can work in similar circumstances, in similar ways in our lives. Like, think about this one, if you like. We have, from God, the great promise that if we raise our kids... If we raise our covenantal kids in a manner that is pleasing to God, then God has promised that he's going to bring those children into a saving relationship with him. And that's, that's quite a promise, right? I mean, that is a loving covenantal promise from God. But you see, sometimes God uses that very promise to test our faith, doesn't he? Like, we see covenantal kids away from God. We see our covenantal children in our families or other families, people we know, and we see that they have strayed from God. We see that they have absolutely uh, no spiritual interest that we've seen. And that begins to rattle us. That sort of shakes us. It tests our faith. It tests our belief in the God who gave us those very promises, Right? Or we've got that same situation, not with our kids, but with ourselves as well. You know, we're given that great promise that we always love to recite. We always go to, especially in, in, in prayer, you know, that, that uh, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know, that God's got a plan for our lives. You know, that God's got a purpose. He's got an order. And we love that promise. And then, when things start to wind in our lives, and when things sort of start to get a wee bit uncertain, it's actually that promise of a plan that that challenges us. It's that promise when we think about that promise that challenges our belief and trust in God. In fact, it, it could even be said that it's the same of our very salvation. We think of the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are eternally saved. That we are. We've got the promise that we are safe in Christ forever. 
that then cancer helps. You know, or there's this period of real spiritual dryness. Challenge. And that promise that God has made us of eternal security and eternal salvation, that tests our faith. Our faith even in the existence of God even. Now, what we have to hold to in those circumstances is, yes, that God might use the great promises to test our faith. But here's the thing. He does that to bring us to a surer faith and trust in him. That's why he does it. I mean, just think about Abraham here, Abram. You know, God uses this promise of land to test his faith. And and then, you know, by the end of this story, and by the end of chapter 12, can you imagine Abram's delight in being back in the land? After all that we just read, or that Paul's just read, of what he does and what he gets up to in Egypt, can can you imagine Abram's joy at going back to be restored to the Lord? God promises us great things and he sometimes tests us through those great things but the thing is that he does that for our spiritual well-being he does it for us so the the challenge there is a challenge to god's promises the challenge of god's promises okay you remember what the second one was the corruption of Abram's heart. The corruption of Abram's heart. Okay, so where are we in the story? We've not got all that far into the actual narrative, have we? But we know that that Abram's facing this famine. So what he does, he boosts off to Egypt. And we're perhaps not saying that he was wrong to move to Egypt, but I tell you this, for nothing, we are saying that what he does where he gets to Egypt is wrong, aren't we? Because what he does is he acts shamefully. Let's face it, he acts immorally. So let's think about what Abram does, okay? Now, first of all, what Abram does is encourage lies. Wouldn't you say? See, he's gone to Egypt and he knows that by going to Egypt, what he's doing is he's going to a place where he is an alien and a stranger. And because of that, he's got no rights whatsoever. And that obviously instills fear in Abram. And he's going there knowing that his wife, Sarai, Abraham's a guy with a beautiful wife. Okay, He knows that his wife's beautiful. And that he knows that he might be killed for the Egyptians to take her as as a wife for themselves. So what does he do? Do you see it? Verse 13. Abram asks Sarai to say that that she is his sister. Now, you might say, okay, but what we looked at a couple of weeks ago was that there's actually more than an element of truth to that, isn't there? That Sarai was Abram's sister, or half-sister at least. And that's right, of course. But Abram is clearly not wanting Sarai to, to say so much that she, 
that she is his sister so much as Abram's wanting Sarai to say that she's not his wife. Yes? And we know, if we know anything, that half a truth is a whole lie. Isn't it? So, Abram's encouraging Sarai to lie. But there's a, a second thing here, and I hate it, if I'm honest. I think it's disgusting. Because what Abram does here, there's this horrible theme of self-preservation, isn't there? And it is horrible. I mean, what Abram's doing is really just chucking his wife to the dogs. And he is just leaving her entirely exposed. And I really hope, I mean, he's doing it all for his own benefit. Look what he says. He says, look, wife, say you're my sister so that I will be treated well. Say that you're my sister, why? So that my life will be spared. And I really hope you're reading that, especially the guys here, and you're thinking, Abram, you can't do that, man. I mean, that is just a This is your wife. This is the woman God has given you as a gift. This is the woman you are supposed to cherish and love. What are you doing? How can you show such total disregard for your wife? There's lies and there's this self-preservation, but... It's all really about a lack of faith in God, isn't it? Because I want you to think about the contrast here between what we looked at last time and what we've seen tonight. The contrast, rare in Scripture, will you see such a contrast so close together? Chapter 12. I mean, what did we see last time? Before Abram was willing to, remember that, God's called him, Abram was willing to do everything for God everything, off into the unknown, show total faith, total trust in God. That's what it was all about last time. That was the theme. It was just his obedience. Now what have you got? Now there's, all of that's gone. Straight away in one chapter, we're now faced with a man who's showing no trust in God. All he's showing is a fear of man and no faith in God. Now you see, because of Hollywood, I'm going to blame Hollywood here for pretty much everything that exists, okay? Like, because of Hollywood blockbusters, um, we are so used to the hero of the story, the hero of uh, films and, and, and stories as being good guys, aren't we? Like, I, I don't know what your favourite Hollywood blockbuster is. I know that some of you went to the cinema last night and watched... Captain America. So let's say, just for the sake of argument, that Captain America is our favourite glossy Hollywood blockbuster for the evening. Now, the main character in that, I haven't seen it, but the main character, you know how it goes, he's going to have one or two flaws in the film, just to make it a wee bit interesting. But ultimately, the main character, films like that, they are a good guy, aren't they? And then you think, what have we got here? You know, in Genesis 11, we've had this build-up with the genealogy. And it's preparing us to meet our hero. 
the hero of the story, the hero of the text, and you get into chapter 12, and you're like, here's our hero, here's Abram. And he's awesome, isn't he? You get into chapter 12, and he's obedient, he's brilliant, he's fantastic. Then what happens? Here, the bomb falls out again. And he, wait a minute, our hero is disobedient. Our hero is horrible. Our hero is lying. Why? Why is it like that? It's like that because unlike Hollywood, the Bible shows us what man is really like. Unlike Hollywood, the Bible shows us that man is the scum of the earth. And that is never easy to hear, is it? But that is what we've got to see from Genesis chapter 12, that like Abraham, you and I are filth. You know, we are scum. That like Abraham, even after the incredible blessings from God, we are capable of atrocious Even after blessing, after blessing from God on high, we are capable of this stuff. We are capable of lies, of self-centeredness, of discarding the people we love, of total flagrant lack of faith in God. So what I would say to you tonight is let this part of the story of Abram be a warning to you that we can move very, very quickly as Abram does from a place of obedience to a place of disobedience. We can move like that from a place of trusting, walking with God to a place of backsliding. Let there be no spiritual pride in this place. And more than that, look at Abram and let's see and be real about the corruption that is in our hearts. We are sinful people and let that drive us all the more to the mercy of God. I mean, think about it. That, that God could show grace and love to a man like Abram. That God could show grace and love to people like us. It is incredible, isn't it? Let's point to the corruption of Abram's heart. Okay, we close tonight. Third point. The continuance of God's blessing. Okay, the continuance of God's blessing. Okay, so Abram goes into this foreign land. He goes into Egypt. He pretends. He does it. He pretends that his wife is his sister. And predictably what happens is these Egyptians, they see the stunning, beautiful woman. And... They take her into the royal court and they add her to, to Pharaoh's harem. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? Because despite all of the sin and despite that wickedness, what do you see happen? God intervenes, doesn't he? What he does is he inflicts disease and illness, plagues on Pharaoh and his household. And these are so severe. The original is like the idea of plagues upon plagues. It's so severe that Pharaoh takes Abram, rebukes him, and sends him packing, sends him back up to Canaan. Now that's what happens, but what we need to see, in fact, I'll tell you this, what the whole account is about here is that God's 
purposes continue even in the face of human sinfulness. God's purposes, they continue even in the face of human sinfulness. You see, if you think about it, he's been promised so much, hasn't he? He's been promised all these covenantal blessings. He's been promised that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. And what does he do? Alive, what does he do? He threatens it all with his sin. But what happens? God. God has a plan. God has made promises. So God steps in and it's like he sort of grabs Abram by the collar, isn't it? And he picks him up out of Egypt and he plants him back in the promised land. God's purposes, do you see? God's promises that he makes, they are sure even in the face of mankind's sin. And what we see here is a motif that begins in these verses. And it's a motif that sort of winds its way, threads its way throughout the rest of Scripture. I wonder if you can see it. And we know what a motif is, right? A motif, this theme that will exist and recur in literature, in music. I mean, uh, think Verdi's Rigoletto, okay? And you've got these few notes that, they, that begin, the start, and they sort of recur all the way through the, the piece in, in different ways, this recurring theme. Would you see that that's what we've got here? Do you recognize the biblical motif in Genesis chapter 12? The theme, the motif of Exodus. Do you see it? Think about it. Here, Genesis 12, because of sin, Abram is stuck in a strange land, isn't he? Only to be rescued by God and taken to the promised land. Does it sound familiar? Does it? Well, what about the fact that it's repeated later in Scripture? You know, the people of Israel... Where are they? Because of their sin. They are in Egypt again. And then what happens? God leads them out of Egypt and he leads them to the promised land. It's repeated. Then what about, okay, it happens again later on in the Old Testament. The people of Israel, where are they? This time it's Babylon because of their sin. And what happens? God goes in and he takes them and he leads them out and he leads them back home to the promised land. What we see time and time again in scripture is that human sinfulness is no obstacle to God's desire to have his people live and dwell with him. And let me tell you this. This is where we close, okay? There is one great and final realization of the Exodus theme in scripture, isn't there? The Exodus motif is repeated in each and every person here who is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you recognize the Exodus motif in your own life? Do you see that what God did for Abram here in Genesis chapter 12, he's done for you? Do you see it? That God, for you, has taken the initiative. 
as a Christian that he has grabbed you and he has taken you out of that mess and the chaos that is caused by your sin and he's taken you in love and he has firmly entrenched you in the promised land of your salvation. And listen to me now because it just gets even better than that. Do you see that just as God had a plan for blessing Abram, a plan that nothing, not even Abram's wickedness and sin could change you. See that just as that was the case for Abram, that your salvation, this exodus motif in your life, it is unalterable if you're in Jesus Christ. You know, it's completely unchangeable and reversal, irreversible, regardless of your present sin and your wickedness. Friend, if you are in Christ tonight, guess what? You are in Christ. If you're in Christ, there is nothing that can be done about it. There's nothing that you are able to do to challenge the certainty of the fact that you will abide with God in the promised land. Isn't that amazing? It is completely sure. You are bound for heaven as surely tonight as on that day when you will set foot on that foreign shore and will meet your Saviour. You will meet Jesus Christ face to face. It is entirely sure. So tonight, we close thanking God, don't we? I mean, we praise him this evening. We worship him. We thank him that not even our own corrupt hearts, because of what Jesus Christ has done, not even our own corrupt hearts, can stop us being in glory with him. That is mercy, isn't it? What grace that is. To God be the glory. Let's pray.